And a very pleasant good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Good to have you along tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com as we kick back and talk about the Cleveland Guardians and the Cincinnati Reds. I'm still going to have trouble with that all throughout this season. I know as a fact I will. But in order to talk about what's going on with the Reds, we have to bring in our Cincinnati Reds expert, Blake Watson. Blake, I know you've been going through some health issues, but how you feeling this week? On the men, Dave. Get in there, brother. <laughs> That's good. At least you don't have the Jonathan India hamstring problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jonathan India hamstring problem. Sandel's got COVID. You know, everything. And it just, you know, it always happens. But, hey, India got through last year without having any, really any injury problems. So this is kind of a... First thing for him, and, and who knows how long he's going to be on the mend. Well, and the thing about India, too, is there was a lot of times last year where he was banged up. Um, you know, it would look like, oh, crap, he's hurt. And then out of nowhere, he'd be still in the field. So when he came out with that hamstring injury, everybody's like, oh, I guess it is kind of a big deal because, you know, he played through a lot last year. Yeah, he, he really did. Um I don't know. Has his hair grown longer since last year? <laughs> I think it has. He seems to be pulling it back a whole lot more. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of things to talk about on this week's show. Uh, probably the most important is the fact that the Guardians signed Jose Ramirez to an extension. And Blake, it even surprised me because the thing about it was when they first came out and said they were – signing him up to an extension I had heard five years um, all of a sudden last week when they signed him to the extension it became seven years and he's going to be signed up through the through the 2028 season which to me is just I, I, it's almost unbelievable what the Indians front office just did with with Ramirez yeah it's, it's obviously if you're going to do it for a guy Ramirez is the guy to do it for um, he seems like, you know, he really likes being in Cleveland. He is kind of the heart and soul of that team. He's still relatively young, productive player from, you know, both sides of the plate. Um, it's the right guy to do it for, that's for sure. But it was definitely a shock to the system to see the Indians shell out that kind of money. Yeah, it, it really was. And, and that being the case, I mean, he had a good series this weekend against the San Francisco Giants. But, boy, I had an opportunity to see just up close and personal why the Giants are one of the elite teams in Major League Baseball. Blake, when you give them an inch, they take a mile. This is a team that, boy, if you make a mistake against, they really capitalize against you. And that's what happened to the Indians this weekend. They made stupid mistakes, and the Giants took care of business by making the Guardians uh, basically pay for the mistakes that they made. That's what good baseball teams do. Um, it's not about, you know, the, necessarily the amount of mistakes. It's how you capitalize on them. You can't give teams extra outs. You can't give teams, you know, extra opportunities. Um, and, and if you do that and then you capitalize on it, it's it, it just, I mean, completely changes the game. We watch it, you know, at the Mount all the time where, you know, we're in a game and then we kick one ball and it's seven straight runs. Saw it a little bit yesterday with, you know, Malley against the, the Dodgers. He cru cruises through the front, 
three and some change, and then in a blink of about 12 seconds, it feels like he gave up seven runs because the Dodgers start, he, he lost control for a second, and the Dodgers started murdering it. Um, and that's just what good teams do. Yeah, and and the Dodgers and the Giants, no wonder they won 107 and 106 games a year ago to capitalize on everything. It's not unusual. And, of course, an old red foe, uh, Anthony DiSclefani, boy, he really threw well against the Guardians on Saturday. He looked outstanding. Yeah, he's turned, he turned into a – he had a good year last year. I know he battled some injuries last year. Um, people, you know, in Cincinnati – didn't really give him his credit. Anthony DiSclefani is a, you know, top 25% starting pitcher in, in Major League Baseball. Um, that guy is, he's a he's a, actually reminds me a lot of Tyler Valley in the fact that his stuff plays up. You know, he's not a 97, 98 guy, but his 94 play, plays to a little bit harder than it actually is. Um, he's, he's always out there. He's competitive. He's in the strike zone. Um, he's just a really, really solid big league starting pitcher. And at times, he's going to be dominant. Well, the White Sox are on top of the league right now with a record of the division with a record of 6-3. and three. And then you've got the Indians in Detroit at 4-5. and five. The, Guardi- the Guardians, see, here I go, Indians. The Guardians were expected to play tonight against the White Sox, but they've got the same snow problems that Cincinnati has today. So that game has been postponed. They're going to make it up as a split doubleheader on July 12th. So, that being said, let's move over to Cincinnati. Because the big story this week in Cincinnati was not the fact that Nick Senzel is hurt again. was not the fact that Jonathan India is hurt for really the first time in his career. It's the fact that the Reds' president of operations, Phil Castellini, opened his big mouth, and inserted foot. And it really caused a lot of backlash by the Reds fans last week, didn't it? Uh, yeah, and and you also didn't mention the fact that their one big big addition, Tommy Pham, is over for his lifetime with the Reds. Um, he's off to the worst start in friggin' baseball history, it feels like. Um but no, Phil Castellini on opening day here in Cincinnati. Obviously, it wasn't opening day, but it was you know opening day in Cincinnati is a is a bit of a a, a, a you know a pastime, a religious holiday almost. And he was the story. Um, he went on during the morning. I think he was on stage at the Holy Grail at the Banks with Mo Egger and somebody else. Um, and he made some comments about you know if they. The, the Castellini group has never stopped investing in the team. And I say all this with, as you well know, I am a, I'm an apologist for the Castellini group. Like, I think they're fine. I, at this point, you know, you know, I'm cool with them selling the team, but I, I am an owner guy. Like, in the lockout, I, I was on the ownership side. I thought, you know, you know owners take most of the risk. Um, players just play, right? Like, I am an ownership guy. But when he said, you know, the only real way to make the Reds profitable is to move them is mind-boggling, completely out of touch. And then he doubles down in an interview with Brandon Seho on the field uh, right prior to the game on WT here in Cincinnati. He, uh, he said, where are you going to go? Basically, shut up and root for your team and don't ask questions is what it felt like as a fan of the Reds. 
and to Phil Castellini, who I know will never hear this show, but I want to say my piece, kiss my ass. Um, I, I, you know, who are you? The Reds were here long before you and your father took over. The Reds will be here long after you clowns leave. Um, Cincinnati Reds are the oldest and one of the most proud organizations in all of sports. And you have just alienated a fan base by, you started it in the offseason. And, and, you know, I, we talked about this in the first week, first thing, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I said, you know, I kind of get it, trading Winker to get rid of the Suarez contract. I don't like it, but I can justify it. I understand moving on from Gray. I wish you gave Nick Castellanos the contract, but I get the reality of small market baseball. I'm not stupid, and neither are Reds fans, and that's the thing that pisses me off. Is he acts like Reds fans are dumb, and we're not. The Cincinnati Reds fan base is actually one of the smarter fan bases in, in sports, you know, or in baseball. You go along with like the Cardinals and teams like that from that, that really know and get baseball. And he alienated all of us. And that clown needs to shut his mouth because the Reds again will be here long after he's gone. That really, really alienated a lot of fans that really pissed me off. Well, I was I was extremely disappointed. You know, I'm I'm not happy with the uh, Guardians management either with the Dolans. You you've heard me say this time and time again. But the one thing that the Dolans don't do is exactly what Castellini came out and did, and that is basically alienate your fan base. You already, like you said, have traded away people and and got traded away two good players in Suarez and Winker. And you can say all you want to about how Suarez wasn't hitting the baseball. He's hitting the baseball in Seattle for whatever reason he's actually doing it. And he, what Castellini did was he basically made the fans out, like you said, to look like idiots. Don't question us. We know what we're doing. And please where are you going to go? Well, I'll tell you one thing. The Mount plays their home baseball games at Florence Yall Stadium. Well, the Yalls jumped all over that, if you noticed last week, and they started selling T-shirts. Where are y'all going to go? Y'all ought to come down here and watch us play. What a great idea. And that's what a lot of teams are going to do. I'm surprised Indianapolis didn't come up with that idea. I'm surprised Dayton didn't come up with that idea. But then again, Dayton is the farm club for the Reds, so they really don't want to do anything to upset uh, Castellini there. Nonetheless, Blake, I mean, it was just stupid to come out and say stuff like that. It was completely, yeah, uncalled for. There was absolutely no reason. Basically, what it felt like to me was – a guy who's never been checked about anything in his life because he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. And finally something's not going his way. People are calling him out publicly for it. And he couldn't handle it. He could not handle being asked the questions, basically, why do you suck at your job right now? Why are you, you know, the, the, the numbers came out. The Reds had been profitable even through COVID. They made money. With the expanded roster, with spending a little bit more of their money on Cassianos and Suarez's contract and all the contracts they had before. They made money, and you're going to, you know, sell. And I get that. That's fine. I get small market, like, and, and I understand you want to get guys like Hunter Green at the big league level and Nick Lodolo at the big league level and all of these guys, but then you're also running out retreads. And the fact that you think you don't have to answer for that and you can just say, well, where are fans going to go? Basically, shut up 
and just support your team. That's not the way it works, bud. We decide as 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 consumers of your product, we have to decide that we want to invest our time, our money, and our I don't know our our emotional investment into that organization. And you know me well enough to know that I am very emotionally invested in that organization, but I haven't given that team money in a couple of years. I don't pay to go to games. I don't pay to park. If I get free tickets, I'll go. That's it. And I'm even less likely to do that now because the dude's just a clown. Why would I want to put money into his his pocketbook? And in Cincinnati, it's kind of crazy if you sit and look. Like, you've been here long enough to know that who was the bad guy in Cincinnati for the longest time was Mike Brown. Like, Mike Brown, the owner of the Cincinnati Bengals, got crapped on in Cincinnati over and over and over and over again for the things that people are now crapping on the Reds for. And even when the Reds were terrible in the 90s, before this, you know, pseudo run of success started in the early 2000s with the with Votto coming to the big leagues and Bruce and that group, they kind of started at least being relevant. Um, no one really crapped on the Reds the way they did the Bengals. And now Mike Brown's a freaking folk hero in Cincinnati, it feels like. Now a lot of that has to do with Joe Burrow, but it doesn't matter. He's spending money. Like, he, he is attempting to make his team, which just made the Super Bowl, better. And that's if, if Castellini and the Castellini group want any sort of, you know, show of how to operate in the small market that is Cincinnati, and I know the NFL with the revenue sharing and all those things are completely different animals than, than Major League Baseball. But if you win in Cincinnati, people show up. If you're competitive in the city of Cincinnati, people show up and they invest financially and they come to games and they bring their families. And people come from all over Red's country, which stretches from West Virginia to Tennessee, to watch this team play. And they did the same thing with the Bengals. But if you alienate them, I mean, how many years did, did Paul Brown Stadium sit half empty on Sundays? Years because of Mike Brown. But and, and the Castellines are doing the same thing. I, I want to jump in here. What did Mike Brown not do? He never once came out and criticized the fan base. Correct. He kept kept his mouth shut. Yep. He took the complaints and walked away with it. He took him. He took it like a man. And continually worked on building a football team. Castellini, you know, to be honest with you, Blake, I don't know how many people in Cincinnati actually knew that Phil Castellini was part of the Reds organization before last week. I would right. say probably 70% of the Reds fans had no idea Phil Castellini was the president of operations. Yeah, they all would have laid this blame at his dad's feet. Right. And now it goes, you know, the one thing that disappointed me was Johnny Bench coming out and basically saying, hey, there's nobody better than the Castellinis. Um, they want to win as, as, as well as everybody else wants to win in Cincinnati. But I'll tell you what, Johnny, when you look at the bottom line, if you're the Castellinis, what makes, what turns them on more than winning? Making money. That's what that's turns the whole thing. Up. Like in professional sports nowadays, the money isn't made year to year. The money is made in in the the value of your franchise going up. Right. That is where your real money is made as an owner in sports. And 
the Castellinis, I don't know the exact number of what they paid for the Reds organization when they did. But I guarantee it's went up 200% that what it's worth today. And that's where their money is. But to be that out of touch with fans, you're completely right. Johnny Bench, I get it. And I, I bet Bob Castellini's one of the nicest guys in the world. I know people that used to work at the Queen City Club serving him food and things like that down there in downtown. And they say he is a great human being. I don't care. That doesn't matter to me anymore. Right? When you start talking crap about the fans, basically, and, and regardless of you know what he says, to me, he was talking crap about me as a fan of the Cincinnati Reds. And you know what? Again, kiss my butt, bud. Blake, Blake I'm going to go back to a couple of owners that you've probably heard of, but you don't remember them. Uh, Charlie Finley of the Oakland A's was the biggest jackass as an owner to everybody Players, media, fans, everyone, and all he did was win. He continually won, and he was just a big jackass, and nobody cared because they won. You got another one in George Steinbrenner that was basically with the Yankees. He was a jackass, too, to everybody, but he won. And Jerry Jones is very similar, except for he doesn't win anymore. Yeah. Um, if you go, like, I know this is obviously a baseball show, but Jerry Jones is a pretty... Uh, pretty well-known name and he, he meddles and he alienates people and he pisses them off and he tells them things they don't want to hear but no one ever questions whether or not jerry wants to win they might question his motives on winning and they don't win all the time but they know that he wants to win and that's the thing about the reds organization right now is nobody knows if they want to win or not you know it's interesting there's a there's a great and this is away from baseball too but it had it pertains to this there's a great show going on right now on hbo and it's called Winning, How the Lakers Dynasty Began. And I thought it was going to be some crazy, stupid show. But i got to be honest with you. John C. Riley plays Dr. Jerry Buss, who owned the Lakers for years, to a T. But what I learned last night in that show, I found amazing. And, and I'll bet 99% of fans don't understand this. When you own a sports team, not only the tax ramifications of that team, obviously you've, you've got write-offs all over the place, okay? But one write-off that I never knew that sports franchises have are the players. Not just the salary. No, I'm not talking about the salary. You cannot have a team without the players, and the players are known as assets. And those assets can depreciate year after year after year on the bottom line for teams when it comes to their income taxes and their corporate taxes. I never knew that until last night when they discussed it during that show. All of these teams basically use the players. Not only can they write off their salaries, write off their, their trips, write off the all the other stuff that they've got to write off but these salaries are known or these players are known as assets and they can depreciate those assets year after year i never knew that it's no different than a than a, a guy that owns a landscaping business depreciating the value of his truck or or real estate yeah real estate business depreciating the the value of the properties yeah Yep, it, it's crazy to think about it, but that's just the way it is. Realistically, the players 
once under contract, are assets. That's one of those things where, you know, I get it. It doesn't sound good. It sounds like you're almost owning another person, um, but which obviously isn't good in, in, in the times of slavery, you know. But uh, it, it's I, I would still argue that I get it because no one's forcing those players to sign those contracts. Right. That's that's my biggest difference in that. If you have a choice as a player in professional as an a professional athlete. You don't have to be a professional athlete. If you're Bryce Harper and you're not happy with the way that professional baseball values you as an asset, go sell insurance. That's the way it works. Like I can it's no different than you and I if we don't like the way we're treated at a job, we can go find another one. Now, can you go find another one making what Bryce Harper makes? Absolutely not. But that's just the reality of, of an at-will work society. And that's why I've always, you know, those comparisons, on paper it sounds terrible. But then I'm like, yeah, but you don't have to do it. It's not mandatory. No one's making you play professional sports for a living. You decided to do that. Yep. That is a choice you made of your own free will, knowing this, knowing the the constraints with, with which that operates. So you have to deal with the good and the bad. That's just the way it is. We all have to do that in our in our employment lives. Now, especially professional baseball players more than any other ones, with the strength of that union, they get a whole lot more good than they do bad based on what they decide. Um, as a union, just that the union is so strong. So I, 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 that, I, I don't feel poor me about professional athletes nowadays anymore at all. Um, but you think about, you know, the winning time that you're watching with, with Jerry Buss and obviously, you know, Magic and all those guys. I mean, Magic Johnson signed a four-year, $600,000 contract out of Michigan State. Like, what would Magic Johnson be making right now if, if <laughs> he came out of college? He would be signing a LeBron-type deal. Absolutely. And, and But that's the constraints with which they operated. And Magic didn't complain. He played. <coughs> and then he made his money elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, I, I get it, and, but yeah, that poor me shit that athletes try to play, especially when it's collective bargaining time, bothers me tremendously. And here's one of the things. Here's one of the things that they brought out about Magic Johnson. He was being bid on for the shoe contract between Nike and Converse. Now he and Larry Bird went for the Converse contract because they paid them. A set amount right up front it was a hundred. Guaranteed it, money. Yeah, guaranteed money. Larry got ninety, Magic got a hundred thousand. But what Nike offered him was no money up front. They offered him stock options, which at the time were worth eighteen cents a share. Do you know what those shares would be worth today for Nike? He'd be, he'd be a multi-billionaire. Five point two billion dollars. That's what he would have been worth now had he accepted the Nike contract instead of gone with the Converse contract. Anyway. Therein lies another question, though. If Magic signs with Nike and Nike starts their big their big jump back, what was it, 70, 79? Yeah, 70, yeah, 79, 80, yeah. If they would have started it then, would you ever heard of Michael Jeffrey Jordan as a Nike player? Like... Yeah, you can create these scenarios where it's like, well, Magic would have been great, but was he the marketable star that Michael became? I don't know. Um, at that point in time, yeah, Magic was the guy. Larry was not the guy at the time. But what Michael did in the '90s turned Nike from oh. a 
solid little shoe contract with one of the biggest apparel companies in the world. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And they may not have invested in Michael We're, the way they would have had they gotten Magic. And the Nike may not be Nike. I just love these questions about what if, what where, if, what if. Where, where Converse turned things around. I mean, because Converse made a lot of money. When I was in high school, I wore Converse tennis shoes. That that was the brand that everybody wanted to buy. And and they they signed those two. But where Converse really took off for a while was when they put Magic and Larry in the same commercial. And Magic Johnson driving up to Larry Bird's French Lick, Indiana, palatial estates where he's got the basketball court out there. Larry's on the lawnmower. Magic pulls up in the crazy uh, chauffeur-driven Cadillac and gets out, and they decide that they're going to play one-on-one. And that's... The choose your weapon campaign. Correct. And that's where Converse really took off. But then, if you here's another one if you recall. Michael Jordan and Larry Bird did a commercial campaign for McDonald's. I remember it. Yeah, where they were playing horse. And those were the funny that those broke loose at the Super Bowl, I forget which one. But those broke loose at the Super Bowl and they were playing horse and it got to be so ridiculous it was hilarious. Um, and they would just look at each other like, okay, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. But, okay, let, let me get back out on the field. I want to talk about Hunter Green. Hunter Green has really looked good in his two starts, but what bothers me about Green is the amount of publicity that he's getting for throwing his fastball over 100 miles an hour so many times in a game. Blake, it's not the... Not the number of times that he's throwing his fastball, but he's got to have another pitch because these major league hitters are going to time up that 102-mile-an-hour fastball pretty soon. Uh, he does have another pitch. His slider is devastating when he throws it for strikes. Devastating. Um, and his slider, after a 102-mile-an-hour fastball, he can throw it. He throws a slider about 87, 88, which is it acts as a change-up and a breaking ball. When, when Hunter Green's in the zone with his secondary pitches, he's, he's un, unhittable. He's working on a changeup. But you're right. I mean, it's not all about the fastball nowadays. If it was, and he had no ability to throw those other pitches for strikes at all, he'd be a bullpen guy. Um, the most exciting thing about Hunter Green, though, is the ease at which he throws that 102. Like, it's just smooth, easy, out of his hand, clean, um, and it, it just pops. It's, you watch a lot of those guys that throw that hard. They have to really exert themselves, and he doesn't have to do that. So it, it's exciting to watch him throw. But, yeah, I mean, with any 21-year-old, usually your secondary pitches are the last to come, especially from a guy that was a high school guy who's dealt with Tommy John, who was a two-way player um, all the way through his high school career, so he wasn't a P.O., so I think, you know, Hunter Green's just starting to grow, but it's the ease at which he throws 102. I think you're going to find later, you know, as he becomes a little more polished, he's probably going to be more in that Verlander-type 98-99 range that ends up at 100 when he, when he stops because he'll just find a way to be a little more smooth with it early and then, you know, have a little bit extra that he can reach back for. Um, but he's definitely got to develop his secondary stuff a little bit. Yeah. Now the Reds right now are in the bottom of the Central Division at two and eight. St. Louis leads the division five and three. The Cubs and Pittsburgh are each at five and four, and Milwaukee at five and five. But there's this kid down in the minors 
Blake, that all of a sudden everybody around Cincinnati, he's in Chattanooga, that everybody's screaming bloody murder over this Matt McClain guy. He hit for the cycle yesterday, and everybody's looking to him to come up. What do you know about him, if anything? Uh, not a ton. Um, I, I, I did hear about the cycle thing. I think he's that shortstop that they just drafted a year or so ago out of, uh, out of UCLA. Similar to, to Senzel when they drafted him, he was considered one of the, the better college, uh, more polished college hitters in the fact that they thought he could get through, you know, lower levels pretty quickly. Um, he hasn't played above double A. I mean, he is, I think he's rated the number four prospect in the organization. I think they think he can be pretty good, but it's just too early. He's, I mean, if you've yeah. never played above double A, I mean, I would be trying to get him to triple A at some point really soon. But in reality, the, the the spot that the Reds have probably been the best at the major league level this year is shortstop. Kyle Farmer's probably their best player right now. And why are you rushing to get rid of the only guy that doesn't suck? If this kid can play right field, you could send Aristides Aquino packing, sure. If he could play center field, you could just stop thinking Nick Senzel's ever going to be healthy, sure. He could play, you know, third base, and Mike Moustakis, who can't hit his weight, which is, you know, a paltry 240, um, didn't have to play. Sure. But, you know, Farmer's playing well, and you've already got a higher-level shortstop uh, prospect in Jose Barrero, who's obviously hurt. But Barrero should be the shortstop of the future first, and maybe McLean should start moving to a corner outfield spot. Well, I want to get into the, in- the, the Indians, the Guardians, again very quickly because um, remember how I was so excited after every week, every week about Jake Bauer being on the team and how excited I was to have him on this team and just what a great addition he was to the Guardians. And now as far as I'm concerned, a great addition for the Reds, I feel for you. Um, the, the thing that I've got to say is I was wrong. You won't hear me say this very often. But I was wrong about the Indians, the, the Guardians, and a man named Bobby Bradley. Bobby Bradley, to me, Blake, is a guy now that he needs to go away. He is not a major league ball player. He's not a major league first baseman. He is the type of, of team... A type of player, Blake, that it's really gotten to the point where he cannot play anything. I mean, right now, he's played in four games. He's had eight at-bats. He's got one hit, three strikeouts. He's batting 125. And this guy, to me, is just uh, a joke. Uh, The other night, he bobbled a ball at first base. And then later on in the inning, he just completely missed a double play throw from second base uh, to him at first base. So it would have completed a double play and got the Guardians out of the inning. But instead, when the ball went by him, the Giants went on to score four runs in that inning and basically broke, uh, broke the game open yesterday. To me, Josh Naylor, who played his first game in right field last week, coming back from that broken leg, to me, Blake, he's the Indians' first baseman. I don't want to see him in right field anymore. He's a great defensive first baseman. He's left-handed. I would say if the Indians just go ahead and put 
Josh Naylor at first base and let him play. And on the other side of the coin, they've also got another guy named Owen Miller. Now, Owen Miller has really taken the league by storm. He's played in, he's played in all nine games. He's had 28 at-bats, nine hits, or nine runs, 14 at-bats, 14 hits, excuse me, in 28 at-bats. He's hitting 500. He's had seven doubles, two homers, seven RBIs so far. He's walked four times. He's struck out five. I like the guy, but I also got to tell you, Blake, that I don't think this guy has ever learned how to play the game of baseball. He's a great hitter, but on the bases and in the field, he's dumber than a box of rocks. I've never seen a guy, for example, the other night, <clears throat> he was at second base, and this was on Friday night against the Giants. He was on second base, and the Guardians hit a ball out to right center field near the warning track. This guy went halfway between second and third. Tag your butt up at second base. Even if the ball drops on the warning track, you're going to score easily enough. Get your butt back to second base. No, and this has happened continuously. He gets picked off bases. He's a great hitter, but as far as I'm concerned, he doesn't know how to play the game of baseball. And when you get to the major league level, Blake, you got to know how to play the game. For sure, and a lot of Cincinnati fans would have said the same thing about Jesse Winker a couple years ago. He did a lot of the same stuff. Um, just... It's the difference between being a baseball player and a ball player. And Owen Miller is obviously not a ball player. Um, somebody that just instinctively thinks through a baseball game. And, you know, a lot of times people that aren't are a little higher level, like ability-wise, don't have to do that at any point in their life. So they don't learn how to do it. That's why I like a lot of times I like guys that are a little bit of underachievers, like Stephen Kwan, for example. Oh. I really like that dude. He thinks through the game. He's smart. He puts the ball in play. He'll hit behind a runner. Uh, probably a good bunner. Like those kinds of things um, that you get guys to do that you know your big studs don't ever have to do any time in their life. They're never asked at 16 years old to get a bunt down to win a ball game. They're allowed to free swing and lose the game. It is what it is. Yeah, um, I, I would have yeah. I, I been in favor, had you asked me this before yesterday, Blake, I would have said put Owen Miller at first base and Josh Naylor back in right field. But then I saw Owen Miller at first base with an opportunity. The, India, the, the Guardians had the opportunity to pull off a double play. Miller forgot to go to first. He stood in the field and watched the play, and he was late getting to first. And again, another double play was blown, and San Francisco scored two runs in that inning. If you're a first base, you know, and the Indian announcer said, you know, hey, wow, this is the first time he's ever really played first base. I got news for you guys. Rule number one when you're playing first base, go to the bag. On a ground ball, you go to first base. How much more elementary do you have to get than cover first base if it's a ground ball? Think at all. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's what I mean. I mean, and, and you bring up Quan. I love Quan. There's another guy. I mean, I told you this before we went on the air. Stephen Quan a year ago in between Double A and Triple A struck out only nine percent of the time. Nine percent struck out. He's only swung and missed this year one time. 
The one time he struck out, he foul-tipped the ball into the catcher's glove for the strikeout. That's the only time he has struck out this year in eight games, 26 at-bats. The kid just puts the bat on the ball. He's got eight walks so far, one strikeout. And another guy I really like, Blake, is Ernie Clement. You heard me talk about him a year ago. I'd stick that kid at second base and just forget it. Let him play. Let him go. He's he's had 17 at-bats, five hits. He's hitting 294. The kid's a winner. He knows how to play the game, and he knows what the situation is all the time. There are some there are some guys on this team, Blake, that I'll tell you, I think they can build around. Now, do they need other pieces? Oh, heck yeah. They, they need some pieces. I'm not sure Fran Mel Reyes is the type of hitter that everybody thinks he's going to be. He's big, he's strong, but he doesn't consistently hit the ball. We've also got to find some relievers. I mean, right now, I know... Cowboy Chris Welch said the other night that the Reds and the Indians are both carrying 15 pitchers, and that means they're carrying 10 relievers. Now, that's going to go through the next week, next week, May 1st, um, but the Guardians have to find a relief pitching staff that is going to be good for them because you know how Francona loves to use the bullpen, and David Bell does too. Uh, but both these teams are going to have to find some relievers. Uh, otherwise, this season is going to be short-lived for both teams. Well, I think the season's already been short-lived for the Reds, to be honest with you. I'm, and I'm uh, really far away from a, a a guy that you know pulls the plug too early. But it, it's just everything about the way this season has started for the Reds is is just bad. Um, hoping this is the time that I actually you know let them go and maybe they. They, they they let me they pick me back up midway through the year because they're actually competitive. I mean, I haven't watched a minute of actually. I take that back. I turned the game on yesterday, right as Tyler Malley was giving up the fifth of the seven runs in twelve seconds. Um, but <laughs> I haven't watched. I hadn't watched them since opening day here in Cincinnati because Spokane Slaney turned me off that bad. Um, and then you know you hear the the injury stuff and it's just it's tough. But the bullpen actually, I thought at one point. You know, when I watched, I watched every minute of the or every inning of the Braves series, every pitch. I was in the hospital, but I watched every pitch of the Braves series, and um, you know, the bullpen pitched really well. And even during the Indian series, it was the starters who really gave it up, except for the one game when um, Ramirez hit the the long home run, yeah, the Grand Slam. But that was a good ball game. Like at that point, that was a that was a good game. Yeah, it was not an eight to five really shellacking. Like that was a game that was tied in the ninth, right? Yep. Um, so, you know, you felt even in that game, you're like, oh, well, okay, they're, they're not bad. Um, and then, you know, Senzo and Fam run into each other, both missed a few days. India's out. Votto can't hit. Aquino's terrible. It's just, it's tough to watch. You know, a uh, couple things real quick before we wrap things up about Major League Baseball. But the other night, Joe Madden pulled one of those Joe Madden plays against Texas. He walked uh, Seeger with the bases loaded and got the next guy out and got out of the inning with just a run scored. Another Joe Madden play. He's the only guy that has the guts to do it. Yeah. I would do it. You know, I'll tell you one thing. Texas better get on a roll here, Blake, because they spent a lot of money 
in the offseason, and they are 2-7 and seven right now. You may be seeing a managerial change there pretty quick. Yeah, and uh, there are people that I've heard this morning talking about the same thing for the Reds, and I'm like, eh, you guys want to blame David Bell? Please do it, I guess. At this point, I'm done defending him because I don't think he's any good, but you can't blame him for what's going on right now. Dudes don't succeed. It's not the manager's fault, especially if you've spent the money like Texas did. They got the guys. I just if they're not producing, I don't understand. I've never understood how that's the manager's fault. How like this early into a season? I get like I get the okay. It's the third year of a run, and that third year doesn't start the way you want it to. Maybe the message is getting a little stale. But like <laughs> two weeks into a season, the message has no chance to be stale yet. Let me ask you this question: How do you get upset over David Bell and yell for his firing, and still? get upset over Phil Castellini's comments. I don't think you I can. Don't I, I, I don't know how you can either, but people here in Cincinnati hate David Bell, and I don't understand why. I mean, I, I get the... I, I understand the first year, last year, I understand it. This year, he has been given a deck of cards, Blake, that he just can't win with. Without a doubt. Um, I think... Yeah, I, I I am not. Again, I don't think David Bell is necessarily a good manager, but I also don't think Zach Taylor is a very good football coach. And the Bengals went to the freaking Super Bowl. Like, it. it you I, and I agree on that. You and I. I never thought Zach Taylor was that great a football coach. I think he's fine. Like he, he's completely fine. There's a lot of guys in, in. You know, I very feel very similarly about both of them. There's a lot of guys out there that I would take over them, and there's a lot of guys that I would take them over. Um, I, you know, there are some managers out there that if I was given the choice of David Bell or, you know, A, I don't even, I'm not even going to name names, but I would take David Bell. If it was, are you going to take Terry Francona or David Bell? with Terry Francona. It's just, duh. Yeah. He's fine. But I don't care who the manager is if you don't have the talent. It just doesn't matter. You know, the one that befuddles me, though, is Gabe Kapler. I thought he was an idiot in Philadelphia, and he had talent there and couldn't win, and they fire him after one season. San Francisco picks him up to take over for Bruce Bochy. I thought, San Francisco's crazy. And what does he do? He rolls up 107 wins. I, like, I actually really like Gabe Kapler. Um, I've, I've heard some, some comments that he made. He made those comments about, you know, if we don't want somebody bunting down 10 runs, we'll guard the bunt. Yeah. If we don't want him to swing 3-0, we won't give him a perfect pitch 3-0. Like, that's the way the game is being played nowadays, and I appreciate that he actually had the guts to say it. Um, you know, some of the unwritten, old-school, unwritten rules, while I do agree with some of them, it, it's just a different game now, and I like that he had the guts to say it. You know, Francona calls it sportsmanship. He doesn't call it the unwritten rules of baseball. He calls yeah, I think it's disrespectful to let a guy. I, I remember watching one of our our our, uh, our conference foes here in the, in the Heartland let a kid. He went five for five with two grand slams in the first five innings of the game. They're up twenty seven to one, and he stays in there to swing, and, and with bases loaded in the sixth inning. Like that's to me, that's just like let another kid play. You got forty five guys in the roster. Yeah, like that's the kind of stuff. It's just, it's just sportsmanship. It's just kind of disrespectful. Um, to let your, your guy kind of pad stats and things like that. It's like, I don't think it's wrong, but I don't think it's right either. 
Yeah, and plus the fact, you know, I mean, if you look at, at baseball players now, they are so fragile. So fragile. Why in the world, if you're up 10 to 1, do you want to take the chance on Mike Trout stealing a base? Or Bryce Harper going for an extra base? Something like that. Why, why bother? Why even try it at that particular moment? Um, and that's why, to be honest with you, Blake, I don't like the rule. And there's a lot of rules that Major League Baseball is coming up with that I don't like. But one of them I particularly don't like is bringing in a fielder to pitch. What's wrong with that? He's part of the team. But now you're not going to be able to bring in a fielder to pitch when the game is a blowout. Why, why waste a pitcher for a day when, you, when you're down 15-1, to 16-1? to 1? Bring in that field, or even ahead. Bring in that fielder and finish it out. I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's just because at the big league levels, they're made, they're POs. Like, there's no baseball players. These guys have all pitched at the yeah. level. Who cares? Yeah. Leave it alone. You know what was funny was I just saw this on YouTube the other day. It happened two years ago. Anthony Rizzo was on the mound for the Cubs facing Freddie Freeman when he was with Atlanta. And that was funny because they were laughing at each other and basically it was a challenge between, okay, who's going to get the other one? And darned if Rizzo didn't throw him a curveball on three and two and he got him to swing and miss. And they just laughed about the whole thing. That, to me, was was what baseball is. Correct. Where you can find a moment in a game that's 25 to nothing and still enjoy that moment. Yeah. That's the best part about of baseball. It's a series of individual battles. Like Anthony Rizzo and Freddie Freeman. Now, I don't think Rizzo is a Hall of Fame, but Freeman obviously is, but could be an Hall of Fame ceremony 45 years from now, and they're still going to talk about that play. They won't talk about the time they played each other in the World Series, which they didn't, but you know what I mean. Right. Or anything like that. They're going to talk about that moment. Yep. Yep. That's that's what baseball is all about. That's what baseball is all about. Blake, the, the Reds are on the road again tonight. They're in San Diego to open up three-game set with the Padres. That game's going to start at 940. As I said, the Guardians are off tonight. They will play the White Sox tomorrow and Wednesday night to round out what was supposed to be a three-game series, but the game tonight has already been called off. So... That's what's happening between those two, and we'll be talking to you again next week, okay? Sounds good, buddy. Sounds good. So for Blake Watson, I'm Dave Mitchell. Join us again next Monday night at 7 o'clock here on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Until then, have a good night, everybody.